Romans chapter 6. Let's start in verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members of sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Let me pray. Lord, we ask that you would illumine our minds to understand your word. That you would soften our hearts to receive it with joy. Lord, that we would grow in sanctification, that we would desire to live the reality that is true in Christ. That we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That we would become what we are in Him. Lord, that we would work diligently toward that for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. T- two things. Jay, one, could, could you get me some water? And Can you grab that door and close it? Thanks. <clears throat> well, as a pastor, as a pastor, there's nothing I desire more. Nothing I desire more than to see Christ formed in you. Nothing I can think of that gives me more joy. Nothing I can think of that causes me to pray more than the desire to see Christ formed in you. Not only that you would be saved, but that you would grow in holiness. That you would understand His Word. That your families would exalt Christ. That your marriages would exalt Him. That your mouths would sing His praise, would speak truth in love, would be filled with graciousness. That your minds would be constantly focused on God and His worldview. That your hearts would be filled with rejoicing and love for the Lord. That your hands and feet would be dedicated to carrying you to a place where you share the gospel rather than carrying you to a place where you participate in sin. That your eyes would be diverted from things that cause lust in you. And your ears would be diverted from the same. I can't think of anything that I desire more than to see a church that is holy. A church that answers the prayer of Christ in John 17 when He says, Sanctify them by the truth. Thy word is truth. That's what Jesus says. Sanctify them by the truth. Thy word is truth. He wants us to be holy, set apart. In fact, what Jesus says is, is that if we're holy and we love one another and we understand the union we have with Him and the union we have with another and we live in reality of that, the world will know that He is who He said He is. It's the greatest apologetic of the church. It's the greatest defense of the faith that we can present to the world is a holy, loving church. That's what I pray for you. I don't pray for just 
vaguely and generally. I pray it for you as individuals in this body. There's nothing I desire more. I deeply desire to see you mature in Christ. I understand what Paul says when he says that you are my joy and my crown. That's how I feel about you. I have this deep love for you and for God's glory. And so I ache to see you holy. In fact, that's the heart of most pastors. It's the heart of most pastors. So much so that pastors aren't exactly sure how to do it and they're not so sure they trust God the way they should because they so want to make it happen that they grope after methods. They look for formulas to make it happen. I'm going to give these pastors the benefit of the doubt. I don't think most pastors go groping after the latest, greatest program, the latest, greatest formula, the latest, greatest tip or technique for ministry to make their people love Christ because they're totally motivated by selfishness. I believe that many of them go after that In fact, most of them who are biblical Christian pastors pursue those programs, those techniques, and those methods because they predominantly want to see their people honoring Christ. But they don't know how to do it. Or if they do know how to do it, which is preaching the Word and prayer, they don't trust it's enough. They don't trust it's sufficient. Think about the methods that are used. Um, The purpose-driven life is one I can think of. I'm not taking a knock on Rick Warren here. But every church in America, practically, that's evangelical in nature, did 40 days of purpose. If only we took 40 days to all read this book and do small groups, our people would finally be the kinds of Christians we want. I mean, I heard that appeal made. I think of what happened with Willow Creek and the seeker-sensitive church movement. If only we would do church just right, if we orient everything just right, unbelievers would like it, people would come to faith, and people would grow. That's what it takes. Now there's the kind of self-feeder movement. Have you heard of this? The self-feeder. If only I could teach you to read the Bible on your own and not to depend on me or on anybody else in the body to help you grow, then you'll be mature in Christ. There are all sorts of movements, methods, and programs that we use. And predominantly, pastors are interested in them because they want to see their people grow. And because they don't trust God to do it. Do you think Paul cared about his people? Think Paul cared about the church? Look at Acts chapter um, 20. Acts chapter 20. I want you to hear the heart of the Apostle Paul for the church. Verse 17. Now, 
Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, he here being Paul, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Paul called for the elders of the church of Ephesus to come and meet with him because he wanted to instruct them. Those are the leaders of the church. Those are the shepherds, the pastors of the church. He called them to come and meet with him. And when they came to him, he said to them, and here's what he says. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Do you hear Paul's heart here? How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after their, them. Therefore, be alert. Listen, listen to my example, Paul says. Be alert, remembering that for three years... I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. You hear the heart of Paul? I'm leaving. I'm going to be imprisoned. You won't see my face again. You are the shepherds of this flock. Do what I did. I preached with humility. I preached the whole counsel of God. I gave my life for you. I was in tears night and day teaching you so I could see Christ formed in you. Be that kind of shepherd. You hear Paul's heart for the church? What's interesting is that Paul's heart for Ephesus and Paul's heart for Rome are the same. He's never even been at the church of Rome, but he has this heart for them. If you look at Romans chapter 1, look there, Romans chapter 1, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. That's an amazing prayer life, isn't it? Without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. Listen to Paul's concern. 
without ceasing. He's always mentioning them in his prayers because he cares about them. He wants to see Christ formed in them. Look what he says. For I long, verse 11, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift or grace to strengthen you. This is Paul's heart for the church. So here's the question. Here's the heart of a pastor. I think there are a lot of pastors who share Paul's heart. But here's the question. Do they share Paul's method? What method did Paul use? What program did he implement? How did he go about seeing Christ formed in his church? What was his technique? How many sermons did he preach where he gave his people a list of things that we could do? How many times, even in this letter, let me ask you this, how many times in this letter does Paul give a command up to the point where we've got in the text? How many times does he give a tip or technique or strategy for the church to be holy? Because he's writing a letter to Rome and he wants these people to be holy. Do you know how many times he gave a tip, technique, or command in the first six chapters of this book? Until verse 11, zero. You hear that? Until verse 11 of chapter 6, Paul doesn't give the Roman church one command, one tip, one technique, one program, or one method. Not even one. But if he cares about them, why would he do that? If he wants to see Christ formed in them, why would he do that? Because he understands how God does this. Paul understands that they have to be saved by grace through faith in Christ, united to him before he can ever give them a command about being holy. It has to be true of them in Christ before he can command it. That's the predominant nature of his whole letter. It's Paul telling us the reality before he tells us what we have to do. In fact, the first command he gives is interesting. Look at verse 11 of chapter 6. Here's his first command. So you also must what? Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do you hear that? That's his first command. Consider, reckon that it's true. Here's my command for you, church. I just went on for six chapters, Paul says to Rome. Here's my command for you. Six chapters I told you about the gospel. You want to grow in holiness? Consider it true. Reckon it to be true. I just told you that you're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Reckon it to be true. You want to be holy? Reckon that to be true. What does that word mean? It's a peculiar word. The, the Greek word is peculiar. It's a mathematical term, actually, or mathematical in nature, I should say. It's kind of like an accounting term. Paul is saying, in a sense, trust the math of the gospel. Trust that it's a reality. It's like there's a balance sheet with two columns. 
and you have all of this sin, right? Here's your dead to Christ, or dead to, excuse me, you're dead in sin, right? And then here's Christ over here who's alive to God. And it's as if in Christ, and this is not as if, I should say, it is that in Christ, his righteousness, his life in God, his death to sin that he paid on the cross is transferred to your account and your account is transferred to his. All your sin, all the penalty and punishment you deserve is given to him. And all of the righteousness, all of the reward is given to you at the cross. And when he resurrects, he is then alive to God again. He gets his reward. But in Christ, we're treated as if we lived his life. And he's treated at the cross as if he lived ours. What Paul's saying is, church, that isn't a nice story. It's true. Reckon it to be true. Just like when you open your checkbook up and you see the balance and what it is, you reckon your account and you see what it is. That's a reality, isn't it? You do your math right. It's a reality. Reckon it to be true. That's how true it is, Paul's saying. It's true. Know it's true. That's his first command. It's a really interesting command. Know it's true. Consider it. Think about it. Dwell on the truth of it. Dwell on it. That's an interesting first command, isn't it? It doesn't go out and do something good. It doesn't give money to the church. Dwell on the truth of the gospel. Consider the truth of the gospel. Think about it. Know it. So what does it mean, dead to sin, alive to God? What Paul's saying is, here's what you've got to know. You died to sin. The penalty of sin was paid for you in the cross. And the power of sin was broken in your life at the cross. Reckon that true? Are you still in its presence? Yes. Does it still affect your body? Yes. Does it still affect your mind and your heart? Yes. Does it have you enslaved? Does it own you? No. Are you defined by it? No. What are you now defined by? You're defined by being in Christ, alive to God, in Christ Jesus. What does that look like? You guys remember the story of Genesis? Adam's in the garden. God's created his body. And his body's laying there, lifeless, right? It's dead. And God breathes his spirit into Adam, doesn't he? And Adam, what? Comes alive. He breathes into him and he comes alive. And now he's alive to God. Prior to that, Adam could not respond to God. He was dead. And then he was alive to God. The same thing is true or likewise is true of us in Christ. We were dead and now we're alive to God. We now can respond to God properly. But sanctification and change and growth is not accomplished 
only in reckoning or in considering. It's not only accomplished there. That's not where it stops, right? You would think, okay, I've reckoned it to be true. I've considered it to be true. Is that all I do? Dwell on the gospel and that's sanctification? No, although that's the first thing you do. Paul starts there. That's primary. That's ultimate. But he doesn't finish there. Look what he goes on and says in verse 12. goes on and says this. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for for righteousness. So it does. Paul goes on. He gives four commands that can really be summed up in two things. Four commands for us that can really be summed up in two things. Here are the four commands. You look at them. Let not sin. Okay. Therefore reign. That's one command to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for righteousness. Second command. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Third command. Fourth, com- fourth command, um, and present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. It's kind of a fourth command. It can be summed up in two things. The activity of sanctification. There is a reality in the gospel, and then there is an activity that, that we have to contemplate, that reality, and then there's an activity that we have to participate in. In other words, sanctification requires we do something. It requires we do something. We have, to be whole, we have to be this first before we can come it. Does that make sense? To be it before we become it. But it requires that we become something once it's true of us. And, and what is it? What do we do? The first thing is this. Keep sin from reigning, from reigning by not offering your members to sin. In other words, it says is keep sin from reigning in you by not offering your members to sin that's the first thing that's the negative keep it from reigning by not offering your members to it the second thing is the positive and what is that allow righteousness to re- righteousness to reign by offering your members to righteousness hear that don't offer yourselves to sin offer yourselves to righteousness that's how it's done It's a putting off and putting on, as Paul says it. You mortify sin in the flesh, and then you put on righteousness. You put off sin, put on righteousness. Something we do. How do we do that? By not offering our members to it. What does that mean? Paul used an interesting word here, though, offering. It's the word used in Romans 12. Therefore, in view of God's mercy... Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Offer your bodies as a sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. To offer something is to lay it down. It's like you take it to the priest and hand it to the priest as a sacrificial offering on your behalf. That's what they would do. That's what this word is. It's the way it's often used. It was used of Jesus when he was taken to the temple and he was offered there. It's brought forth. That's what he's saying to do with your members. Offer yourselves to righteousness. Do not offer yourselves. Do not lay yourselves at the footsteps of sin. 
Do not give yourselves to sin. Give yourselves to righteousness. So what does he mean by that? What are the members that we're offering to righteousness? James Boyce lists four of them. Here they are. The first one is your mind. Your mind are the members that you offer to righteousness and you do not offer to sin. Look at Romans chapter 12. It's interesting how Paul actually lays this out later. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This present your bodies is the word offer. Offer your bodies. Now look what he says to do. Because this is interesting. This is what Paul says to do. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. When you offer your bodies to righteousness and do not offer them to sin, where that starts is with your mind. You offer your mind to righteousness. You allow it to be transformed by the truth. This is why Jesus can say in John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Your mind has to understand the truth and has to be offered to it. What we do in our culture, even as Christians, is we often offer our minds to sin, to lies, to an unbiblical worldview, to ungodliness, to error. We offer it to that stuff, don't we? How do we do it? Well, our worldview isn't often shaped by the gospel or by the word. Instead, we're driven by success and accomplishment and pride. So we're driven by our worldview. We offer ourselves daily to our success, don't we? We offer ourselves daily to our accomplishments. We offer our minds there, don't we? I mean, I don't know about you guys, but success and accomplishment and pride and having been well thought of by men and go down the list of problems. All of those things, putting myself before others, all of those things are often dominant in my mind and they're dominant there because I offer my mind to them. Hear that? And Paul's saying, stop doing that. Don't offer your mind to that stuff. Offer it to God. Be renewed. Know the truth. Our whole public and for the most part private education system is built for the pursuit of success and self-improvement. It's built for that. It is training our children in a worldview that is antithetical to a, world, a biblical worldview. Look, I'm not just picking on the public schools here. I'm talking about the private schools and guess what? The majority of the homeschoolers I meet. Because 
when their children grow up and get excited about Jesus. And they start saying, I might give my life for the gospel in another part of the world. Their parents go, but I want you to be successful here and live down the street with me and raise children and put them in a soccer program. Stop with that nonsense about giving your lives to the gospel. Let somebody else's kids do that. I'm raising you to be a good American. And then we say, I'm giving them a biblical worldview. No, we're not. We're giving the same worldview that they can get in the public school. And that worldview is that God doesn't matter, that his glory is not supreme. That what matters is God as a way to make me a nice, moral, American family. That's what matters. And that's an ungodly, unbiblical worldview that we offer ourselves to as parents and that we offer our children to. Our politics, conservative or liberal, are generally not in line with the biblical worldview. I don't care which side of the aisle you sit on politically. It's generally not about a biblical worldview. Our popular TV, movies, magazines, radio talk shows, blogs, etc. And sometimes we're so fixated on whether a movie has a cuss word or not that we ignore the worldview that is being taught to us. That's far more insidious than that one cuss word that happened to be used. Oh, it's free of cuss words. Disney movies are free of cuss words and the worldview is fantastic in the Disney movies, right? It's okay if we and our children get a screwed up worldview as long as we don't hear a cuss word. Think about the mind of Christ. Have this mind that was also in Christ. You know what the mind is? He put others before himself. Before himself. How often is that the worldview being taught? That we're offering our minds to? Put others before yourself. It's pretty rare for most of us, isn't it? I mean, if we're honest. Look, I'm not telling you to abandon the schools or to abandon politics, or to abandon popular cultural activities. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we should hole up in some shack in Montana and become isolationists. It's not my point. Because if we do that, then we'll think that the disease is out there and not in here. And look, the disease is right in here. I can't catch it from the world. I already have it. What I'm telling you is that you better be in the word and reading good theology and listening to good sermons as much as you are taking in the world views that are out there. Or your mind will be conformed. You better be taking in a biblical worldview as much as you're allowing your mind to be assaulted by an unbiblical one. Second, your eyes and ears. 1 John 2.16, turn there to 1 John 2. 1 John 2, this is the second member of our body that we offer to sin, that we're supposed to offer to unrighteousness. Paul says, cease to offer your eyes and your ears to unrighteousness or sin. Start offering it to righteousness. Chapter 2, start in verse 15. Do not love the world 
or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and listen to this, and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The desires of the eyes, what are those? The lusts of the eyes. It's, you know, if, if I give you an image of it, I want you to think of Eve in the Garden of Eden. And what does Satan tell her? This fruit is good, Eve. It'll make you wise. And it says in the text that Eve, what? She saw that the fruit was desirable. She lusted after it. And she went after it. Her eyes were offered, in a sense, to sin and not to righteousness. Our ears are often offered to sin and not to righteousness. We're bombarded by our culture. You go into the mall, for example, one of the most demonic places on earth, right? And you walk around and they assault your senses with smells and sights and sounds. And it's all to convince you that you don't have enough, that you should not be thankful, that you should not be content, but that you should want more. And they have it to offer it to you. And we do it. Commercials on TV. You know how many commercials a person watches in their life? And what does every commercial want to convince you of? Without our product, there's no satisfaction in life. That's the whole agenda of a commercial. The movies, books you read, radio we listen to, blogs, YouTube videos we send each other are often assaulting our minds, our eyes, our ears with sin and not righteousness. What am I saying? Don't ever watch TV? No, because that would be a problem for me, at least. <laughs> not the rest of you. What's my point? My point is that you better not be taken in, at least not be taken in more of that than you are of God's Word. The truth better be coming into your head, your eyes, your ears. You better be meditating on that as much as you are on what the world has to offer you. So if that means you have to cut back because you only have 15 minutes of Bible reading, then I would cut back on other things. Because you don't want to offer your members to sin. You want to offer them to righteousness. Third, the tongue. Your tongue. James chapter 3. James chapter 3. Turn there with me. It's right after Hebrews. Right before you get to 1 Peter, etc. Back toward Revelation. James chapter 3. Starting in verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. That's the truth, isn't it? Also, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large 
and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. That is not a good endorsement of our tongues, is it? And we are so often offering our tongues to sin and not offering them to righteousness. When we should be using our tongues to extol the grace of God, to rejoice in God, to worship God, we're often using our tongues for what purpose? To speak gossip, to tear down people, to participate in coarse speech. You know, Paul's so concerned about the gossip problem, the problem of the way you use your tongue. He's so concerned about it that he actually um, tells young widows. He tells Timothy, actually, Paul writes to Timothy and says, Timothy, make sure the young widows get remarried so they don't have too much free time on their hands because they're going to go to house to house and spread gossip. It's a concern. Because that's what our tongues are often used for, right? We offer them to sin rather than to righteousness. We don't speak the truth in love. We don't preach the gospel. We don't encourage people. Instead, we're quick to gossip, quick to tear down, and often slow to worship. Fourth, we're supposed to offer our hands and feet. Hands and feet. You get your mind, your eyes, and your ears, your hands and your feet. Listen to, I see your tongue, your hands and your feet. Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is a lesson our culture could learn right now. Not that the other ones aren't. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11. Right before that, he says this. We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Hear that? Aspire to work with your hands. Put your hands to work. What's he saying? Diligently work at your vocation, your calling. Whatever it is, work hard at it. If you're a mom who's staying at home, work hard at the vocation or the calling that God has given you. If you're a man who has a career, or you're a mom who has a career, and you're a mom. Now you have two vocations. I'm sorry for you. Um, work hard at both of them. Men, work hard at your calling. Don't be lazy. Put your hands to good use. That's what he's saying. We used to call it the Protestant work ethic. It's gone now. But that's what we used to call it. Protestants used to be known for their hard work. Now we've become rich and lazy, right? Why is it important to work hard? Because when you work hard, you generally mind your own business and you're not out causing trouble with other people, right? And you provide for yourself. 
And you're not out being dependent on everyone else because you're lazy. He says, work hard. So here's the question. Are you diligently working at your vacation? Or are your hands dialing phone numbers and typing emails and IMing people and playing computer games and flipping the TV channels rather than working hard at your vocation? What about your feet? Paul says in Romans chapter 10 that blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. Where are your feet carrying you? Where do they take you? Your feet carrying you to bring the gospel to people? Or are they carrying you to the hottest new nightclub? Look, I can pretty much guarantee you, can trust me, that you're not going to be offering your members to righteousness by going to Hooters or the Tilted Kilt. Pretty much a guarantee. Right? Where do your feet carry you? Do they carry you to an opportunity for righteousness? Or do they carry you to opportunities for sin? How do you offer your members? What do you offer them to? What Paul says, offer your members to righteousness. It's a spiritual battle that we've entered. We've been declared to be his. We're his people in Christ. But Satan didn't give up. He didn't just say, okay, the battle's lost. He's right if he said it. Battle's lost. He lost, but he didn't just give up then. He declared war. He upped the ante against those believers. Those who are saved. And he said, I'm going to declare war on you in a way I haven't before. And he comes after us with vigor. And what Paul says is you're in this battle. And you have to fight. And you fight two ways. Two ways. It's real simple. Reckon to be true what is in fact true of you. And stop offering your members to unrighteousness. Start offering them to righteousness. It's really that simple. It's very hard to do, but it's very simple. And we need to be carried to do it. So how do I know you can do it? Paul says, and I'm going to deal with this more next week, Romans 6.14, for sin will have no dominion over you. For we are not under law, but under grace. Grace has dominion over us. That's how we can do it. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for your truth. Um, I thank you that you have saved us in Christ, that you have declared us to be righteous, that you have united us to him through faith, and that we are yours as a result. I pray, Lord, that as those who are truly yours, who are adopted as your children, who are holy in Christ, I pray, Lord, that we would become what we are, that we would be what we are, that we would reckon it to be true because it is. And Lord, that we would, as a result, offer our members to righteousness and not to unrighteousness. For the sake of your glorious Son, amen.